0: Hi, my name is Matt and welcome to Education Exploration. On this podcast, we explore and learn about people serving in different career industries. The conversations focus on what it takes to reach our pathways and goals to educational and professional success. So hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast, Education Exploration. Um, I'm incredibly excited today to have a very special guest. Um, She and I have known each other for a few years and you know maybe if we can get into this a little bit later We'll talk about how we met, but I want to go ahead and let our guest introduce herself. So Please go ahead.
1: Hey, everyone. My name is Gabby Gonzalez. I am a newly hired teacher support specialist for Houston Independent School District. Um, Before I was hired into this role, I taught in the classroom for four years, three in kindergarten and one in second grade.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And so I, I was incredibly honored to have you on the podcast because I know your background and I don't have a whole lot of experience in <laughs> elementary education. Um, so I'm really looking forward to kind of having this conversation with you and really trying to learn a little bit about that environment. But um, if you can go ahead and tell our audience a little bit about your college background, kind of like where you went to school, what you studied, those types of things.
1: I went to the University of Houston, go Cougs, and I actually graduated as a psychology major because I did not know what I wanted to do when I was 18 years old and kind of wanted to take classes that were kind of vague and get a degree that I could kind of apply to anything. So when I graduated, I was still in the thought process of I do not want to be a teacher. And I worked at a school as a data entry clerk for a Title I program. And so I was out of school. And all throughout college, those whole four years where I was working and going to school, I was in total denial about becoming an educator. So when I graduated, I actually did alternative certification and went into the classroom because at that point, there was just no escaping it. I was like, I guess this is my path and just ran with it.
0: Yeah, that's wow. That's awesome. I did not know that about you. (laughs) Uh, That's incredible. No. And, you know, the whole reason why I kind of started this podcast is because, you know, I wanted to share stories like that. Right. And Mm -hmm. have my guests, you know, and exactly what you just said, where you didn't think you'd ever get into teaching and you went down a certain path, right. In college and here you are today. Right. So that's, that's awesome. So if you can kind of just talk a little bit about what college life was like for you. I mean, I know as a psychology major, maybe classes or courses you know, might look a little bit different. But can you give us a little bit of a glimpse into what your um, experience and time was like at the University of Houston?
1: Yeah, definitely. I chose to stay at home and go to school at the same time, so I commuted. While I was in undergrad, even my freshman year, I was always working and I had multiple gigs, kind of like jack of all trades, because I was paying my tuition out of pocket. My parents were able to save up for me like other families and it was kind of like, okay, well, if you wanna go get your education, it's gonna have to come from you. So I was babysitting multiple nights a week. I was singing in church for you know cash gigs, funerals, weddings, quinceaneras. Um, I had my job at the school, and I would tutor kids. I would help. Uh, my mom's coworkers write resumes for their kids or help them write their essays to get into college. Basically, anything that somebody would pay me cash for—that was, you know, something academic, something that you know I could charge hourly—I would take the job and I would pay my tuition in cash. Got some kind of funny looks from the from the registrar. They're like, "Why are you paying in cash?" I'm like, "That like I'm working the whole time, you know, trying to make ends meet and pay." And I ended up graduating with no student debt, so I don't owe anything for undergrad or grad school.
0: That is amazing. And um, <laughs> did you did you ever sleep?
1: No, actually. <laughs> um, I I would um, go to school. I would stack all my classes two days a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, as often as I could. And Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, I was hustling. And after I would go to work, it was some more hustle. After I went to school, it was another hustle. And so I had maybe five or six jobs at the time that I was just constantly looking for some money so I could pay for my next semester.
0: So that makes me wonder about what was your time management like? I mean, how did you organize that type of workload and go to school I'm assuming were you a full-time student at the time Full time
1: time? student
0: wow that's I mean (laughs) I can't even fathom the fact that you were hustling that much and still (laughs) able to go to class right and do the coursework and you know whatever it is that you needed to do to graduate so can you talk a little bit about like how did you organize yourself
1: um there's definitely some sacrifice involved I mean I wasn't really into the the college life the social scene um basically it was, do I take this job or do I go to class? And sometimes it was, let me take this job. But I was always very honest with my professors and I'm like, look, I told them my background, I told them what was happening. And I was like, I can't make it to class, but you know, I'll make it up, I'll ask a friend for the notes or something and do it that way. As far as time management, sometimes it was kind of like a give and take really. So I would Mm -hmm. do as much of the assignments as I wanted to, but did I have a stellar GPA in undergrad? Not necessarily because sometimes, you know, studying time had to be sacrificed for work time. But I was Mm -hmm. very fortunate in the fact that because I had so many skills on the computer, my dad taught me like how to use a Mac when I was like eight. And so I was able to like knock out my work in college and all that time that I didn't need to learn a program or, you know, all that time that I saved because I already knew how to do something, I would make it up by taking a job.
0: So I'm going to actually come back to that thought a little (laughs) bit later because that's going to be something that I'm incredibly interested in, but I'm going to kind of shift this a little bit, but I promise I will come back to that thought about your skill set. So graduation rolls around, it's time to decide, you know, what it is that I'm going to do with the rest of my life. You said that you did an alternative certification. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that looked like? coming from your college life in that sort of segue into your professional
1: life? Definitely. So I actually graduated on my 23rd birthday. So December 17th, I was graduating and it was my birthday. So at that time, it was kind of realizing that there was no money in social work. And as sad as that is, and as much as we need people, I had already had to pay out of pocket. I didn't think I could take a career where I would be making a lot less than if I were to find something else. I had even taken two interviews already with this company that was using students like fresh out of school to be behavior analysts for students with autism. And basically it was kind of like a therapy program where they would go after school and kind of learn coping skills. And that's kind of what I was all about. So I was already working at this school and I was telling the assistant principal all this stuff that I was going through, like, okay, I'm out of school. You know, I need a job, but I don't know what I want to do anymore because I everything that I was passionate about, unfortunately doesn't pay. And it's just a sad reality that all of these students are are facing right now because they want to help people. They get this degree so that they can help people. And then they're released into the real world. And it's like, oh, there's no money in there. So the assistant principal looks at me and he's like, you know, you can use all that in a classroom. And I don't know why that had never occurred to me. Mm -hmm. Um, he, he was like, you know, we have kids with autism here. You know, we have kids with special needs here. We know that, you know, that we have these diverse populations with all these different kids with special needs, whether it be kids with ADHD or kids with, you know, something else that they might need help with. And I was like, I could help these kids in the classroom. He goes, get alternatively certified. We have a job for you. Come on board. I was like, okay, cool, knocked out alternative certification in six weeks. Showed up, took the test, passed it on my first try, and was like, ta-da, I'm here. And unfortunately, he ended up not having a job for me. And I ended up being shipped out two school districts away from my house to have my first teaching job um, about three weeks after I had passed the test.
0: That is something that I know would probably be very disheartening to some people, right? <laughs> However, it, and we might get into this a little bit later, but it almost seems like it was one of those things where if it would have happened to somebody else, they probably would have just given up, right? And instead, mm-hmm. it was almost like a catalyst or like a um, like a projectile, right, to, to the mm-hmm. start of your career. So... Did you start in the middle of the semester teaching in the classroom?
1: Um, the school year started in August and I was in by September. So I missed maybe two, three weeks of the actual class, which is hard in kindergarten because that's the whole time where you're teaching rules and procedures. So I literally had to jump right in from scratch from the very beginning. No okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I I get it. Okay. So yeah, I'm just trying to, in my head, I'm just trying to paint the the timeline picture. And so What was one of the things that drew you to kindergarten? I think kindergarten teachers are incredibly special. (laughs) I spent a few months supporting an elementary campus as an instructional technology specialist. It was probably the most learning I've ever done in my educational career. So I'm just curious about that.
1: Okay, so in all honesty, I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher because I thought we were going to play all day and I thought it was going to be easier. (laughs) Okay. Boy, was I wrong. (laughs) Um, Kindergarten turned out actually to be one of the hardest grade levels. And it's even funny because even teachers that teach fourth grade star writing will be like, I could never be a kindergarten teacher. I like kindergarten because you get them fresh. You get to mold them to exactly how you want them to be as a student and as a person. You're not spending time breaking bad habits because they're like blank slates. And I also love kindergarten because every 20 minutes is like a brand new day. Everything is just like constantly resetting and starting over. And there's so many opportunities for growth with that. You can have, a child with a full on meltdown and 10 minutes later, they're ready to snap back into it. And okay, hug time, little love. All right, you ready to get back to work? All right, let's go. And sometimes you don't get that with the older kids. And I just feel like there's so many opportunities for growth with the babies that are overlooked for other people that might not necessarily have the patience to deal with the tantrums and to deal with the sticky fingers and all of these things. I take that I run with it. And it's all part of the experience.
0: That makes complete sense. and I. I like the way that you talked about them sort of being what you know the analogy that you used was a clean slate
1: mm-hmm. and
0: I've I have the utmost respect for elementary teachers because I know I only spent time as one year as a middle school teacher and four years as a high school teacher and I could not imagine what it's like to operate <laughs> at an elementary campus until I actually you know was able to spend time there and I'm grateful for that time because when I first approached my boss about the position I said you know what I said you know I've spent a lot of time in the 6 through 12 environment I want to know what it's like to start a child from the beginning of their educational career and so can you kind of talk a little bit about what did that look like for you in the classroom like I don't know if it's something where you kind of just talk about maybe a day in the life type of thing or you know however you want to frame it
1: the interesting thing about kindergarten is that you're teaching these kids how to actually go to school And that's something that other educators take for granted. You have to teach these babies how to stand in a line, how to go to the bathroom in a group. You have to teach these kids how to literally sit in a chair because some kids have never sat in a school chair before. And so that does take a lot of time. So with any young child, I mean, even if you look at entertainment that is geared towards early childhood, everything is about 10 to 15 minutes long. And so I try to incorporate that into my teaching because I know that their attention span is about seven minutes. And you have this seven minutes where a lot of magic can happen. And then after that, it's like a straight decline where you're not going to get anything from them. So what helps me is that every couple minutes, we change it up. Every couple minutes, it's like, okay, let's move on to something new. All of my MIDI lessons, all of my phonics lessons, everything like that, is about five minutes of me talking. The rest of the time is them going, exploring, doing something on their own. And I always tell my kids, and we tried it even with the timer. Okay, guys, I need to talk for this long. And a lot of it was, you know, when I started doing that, is them looking at the timer and not at me. And then finally it was, they were more focused on me and less focused on the timer. But what I would always say is, give me this time to talk and then you have all this time to talk, like 15 minutes. I need five minutes of me and it's 15 minutes of you. And what I really try to do with my kids is make everything student-led, student-centered, and give them opportunities to be responsible and to be leaders in my classroom. I have a kid do everything for me. I don't, I hate to say it like this, but it's true, but I don't do a lot in my classroom. I have a kid turn on the lights. I have a kid pass out lunch cards. I have a kid that, you know, goes around the room and make sure everything's picked up and make sure all the chairs are pushed in. Um, When it's time for stations, I have a student that is ready to do that. And it just creates all these possibilities for them to grow and learn and take pride and ownership in their classroom and I think that's really great for kids and I always tell them I'm like okay Let's try and do it like this so that you know how to do it by yourself. And then throughout the year, there were less tantrums of, I can't do this. And it just really created this growth mindset without me having to say, okay, little children, this is what a growth mindset is. Instead of saying, I can't say, I will try to. And it was basically just practicing it without really spending extra classroom time, which we don't really have for them to learn how to be proud of themselves and to learn how to fix their own mistakes, which I always love. And that was the most rewarding part about being a kinder teacher is seeing the growth in these kids, both academically and them growing into little people.
0: I'm so glad that you said that part about your kids doing more than what you were doing. Early on in my career, I had someone tell me that if you're working harder than the kids are, then you're doing something wrong. And so true, because, you know, that's exactly what, in my opinion, you know, education is, is that you are helping really two things. One is someone grow as a human being. But not only that, you're helping them develop the skill sets that they're going to need later on in life. And so what I took away from what you just said is that you're starting that foundation for your kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, just the mere fact that you had students that were responsible for different roles in the classroom, you are already setting them off on the right foot, saying, hey, I have this responsibility, even if it's as simple as turning on and off a light, that's still my responsibility. And I have to make sure that I am doing what Ms. Gonzalez is asking me to do, because if not, then I'm not fulfilling my part as a student.
1: Definitely. And as educators, we're always responsible to set up real world scenarios in our classrooms. How does this tie into the real world? And that goes even further than the academics. And so with my training of my kids to be responsible, it ended up being extended throughout that. So in my class, my kids posted everything everything that they did to Seesaw. So they would go and do their own work and then they would post to Seesaw. What ended up happening is that you would hear other voices on top of the recordings from my other kids. So we finally decided, okay, everybody, and we always have like class discussions. I wanted them to be part of the decision. And I brought it up one day. I was like, what if I let you go into the hallway and spread out and record? That means I would be in the classroom and you would be all by yourself in the hallway. And they, you could see their little ears perk up. They're real interested in this. They have this opportunity to be like grownups and to be on their own. And I, we set boundaries. I said, but here's the deal. You can't go past the corner because I want to be able to peek outside my classroom and i want to be able to check on you if I need to check on you. However, and then it gets real serious. If I hear from another teacher that you are not recording and you were playing, it's over for everybody and their eyes just get all big. Like we don't want that. We want to be cool and independent and we want to be in the hallway. That's right. And if you take advantage of this, we all come back in and you all have your recordings with everybody's voices on top instead of having just your voice. Is that what you want? No, never. And so I never had any problems. I would have all of these little five and six year olds spread out in the hallway from one end to the other. They were all on task, and teachers would peek into my classroom and just give me compliments all the time about how my kids were so on task. But another reason why my kids were on task is because they liked what they were doing. You know, they liked recording videos instead of filling out a worksheet. I'm not saying worksheets are bad, I used worksheets, but then at the end of it, they would take a picture on Seesaw and record their voice explaining what they did. And they would even leave me some notes. Ms. Gonzalez, I really had a hard time with this. And that helped some of my kids that were like kind of shy and they didn't want to say it in class. They would record it quietly on the video when they were sitting by themselves in the hallway. And I would listen back and be like, oh, okay, you know, I can help with that. So it ended up being really cool. And it was just a give and take process for both myself and my students.
0: That's a great description, Gabby, of building that skill set in a student, right? And like, you know, we had just talked about That whole responsibility thing, I think, is one of the things that as a student myself, I was able to take away. And knowing that my teacher was there supporting my educational journey by giving me the option, right, or the choice, if you will, of being able to learn in a certain way. And so by you describing what you just said about them going out into the hallway, using Seesaw, you know, really becoming essentially independent learners, right? And so I think that is the way education is evolving today. And so we'll get into talking about what your role is now, but I think that is incredibly valuable for those students to be able to, at such a young age, to learn those skills so i want to pivot back to what we were talking about earlier with you learning different types of ways of helping you like when you talked about learning how to use a mac at such a young Mm -hmm. age or the different jobs that you had in college So I'm wondering, what is it about you doing that? So what I mean is, what was it about having all those jobs and building your repertoire of being able to communicate with people, being able to, you know, babysit and do all these different things? How did that help you? And you can speak to either in your college life or in your career as an educator. I'm just curious.
1: Well, I attribute a lot of my computer skills to my dad sitting me down at probably eight years old saying, this is a computer. This is the way of the future. You need to learn it now so that you'll be ahead of everybody. And lo and behold, 20 years later, he was 100% correct. And so it was little computer programs, like all the 90s kids will know, like kid pics and all the little Disney CD-ROM games. But a lot of it, he was like, Sit down and type. And I was like, type. I'm eight. None of my friends are typing. And he was like, very adamant. He's like, you need to learn how to do this. So he bought me like a little typing game. And I was sitting there, you know, typing away. And it was like a words per minute game, stuff like that. But when I ended up getting into like fourth grade and fifth grade, where the curriculum focused more on writing and being creative, I found myself very frustrated all the time because what I saw in my head, I wasn't able to put down on a piece of paper. I can't draw which is another reason I teach kindergarten because you can draw in a kindergarten classroom and they'll be like, Miss Gonzalez, it's amazing. It's beautiful. And we love you. And we're here for it. You know, other grade levels they'll be like, no, we don't know what that is, but using the computer for my assignments in fourth and fifth grade, when literally nobody else in my class was, because it wasn't popular at the time, I was like, this is what I want to do. And I was able to bring that to life with the computer, with clip art, instead of me having to hand draw these illustrations that didn't meet up with this vision that I had in my mind. Now, the problem was, was that not every teacher accepted typed work. And so what that taught me is that you have to accept what a student can do and kind of have a little give to that. Because my thing was, I wasn't trying to be fancy. It was legit. I see that this way in my mind, and I can't bring it to life the way that I want with a pen and paper. I can bring it to life on a computer. And now that's a big topic in education is all this differentiation and letting students show their knowledge in the way that they want to show their knowledge in. And I feel that internally because I'm like I get it. <laughs> I understand. You might not want to do your assignment this way, but I will totally accept it if you want to do it this way. I'm okay with it. You're showing your knowledge either way. So, I always wanted to be the teacher that I would have wanted to have when I was younger because not every teacher is understanding. Not every teacher would let me type my work. Not every teacher would accept a PowerPoint as a presentation. You know, and so I always wanted to be the teacher that would let students find themselves and become their own students and their own people because I made a career out of it so who's to say you know this little five-year-old might not be able to experience this and find something that they love early on
0: I'm really glad that you mentioned being able to use what is and I don't want to say necessarily available to a student but you know going back to the example of you saying you know you couldn't really draw and I can't draw either and I'm right there (laughs) with you like there were times where I would have to demonstrate something in a high school business classroom and my students were like, Mr. C, we don't even know what you just drew. And I'm like, yeah, I know. It's it's in my head. I'm trying to get it out. Guys. <laughs> but it goes back to that whole idea about you developed skills and ways of doing things. I almost feel like the best way when I was listening to you talk about it, I'm like, man, you were really pioneering methods of <laughs> Of kind of learning, right? And Mm -hmm. it worked for you. And I think that is something that I find often with teachers that just because it's not their way doesn't mean that it's not the way. And Mm -hmm. so even when I was supporting teachers in the classroom with technology, I would often get pushback because they just... I don't know if it just was they weren't comfortable in learning a new skill or if it wasn't that they just weren't confident on the computer in general. Or if there was something else there that that was missing, I could really never figure it out. And it would always frustrate me when I'm like, OK, you know, your students are begging for mm-hmm. this over here, but you are over here with your ability and your skill set, how can we get these two to come together and match each other in a way? Or maybe even, maybe a better way of saying it is complement each
1: other. Mm -hmm.
0: So I'm kind of wondering what your thoughts are on that. And
1: that is just kind of like a lifelong quest because I feel like the answer just isn't easy. In my experience, for teachers especially, it's easier to say my students can't than for them to say, I don't know how. And that narrative has to shift because we expect our students to be lifelong learners. We don't expect our kids to know everything when they walk through our doors. I mean, that's what we're here for. But for some reason, because there's so much piled onto a teacher's plate, and I mean, we know that, and there's so many expectations that are set by, I mean, whoever, that technology just kind of gets lost in the mix, gets put on the back burner. And it's easier for teachers to say, you know, my kids can't do that than to say, okay, maybe I should look into this so my whole strategy with that is kind of based on like show and tell and it was kind of by accident but i started figuring out that this works so other teachers would see my kids in the hallway on their ipads working in groups or working individually depending on what the assignment was and they would ask my kids, what are you doing? And thank goodness, because, you know, that's a big thing with admin. Like, they want the kids to know what they're doing and why they're doing it. They would always be able to answer. And so the teachers would talk to the kids, poke their heads in my room, and be like, hey, this is really cool. Like, how are you doing this? Not many. I'm telling you, out of the whole campus, too. But with that, you're able to spark these conversations as to what you're doing, why you're doing it, and kind of be like, oh, you like that? Here, hold my hand. I'll show you exactly how to do it. Is it everybody's cup of tea? No. I mean, I was the only one out of four kindergarten teachers that were using Seesaw on my campus. And I finally had to put my foot down, even though I was new to the campus and new to this team. Like, no, this is how I'm going to do things, because just how you feel comfortable doing things your way, this is how I feel comfortable. Nobody on my team wanted on board, but I would always say, hey, I made this Nearpod. Hey, I made, you know, this game on Spelling City that you are more than welcome to. Here you go. And did they take it? No. But I always offered. It was always there on the table. And they knew that when they were ready that they could come to me. So all of a sudden, March rolls around and everything is online. Who do they come to? (laughs) (laughs) They would come to me. And I never said, well, you didn't want to learn it back then. You know, why are you bothering with it now? Absolutely. When do you want to set up a time? I would have Zoom we video parties where I would do we video tutorials for some of the teachers on campus on my own time. Hey, Gabby, I really want to learn how to do a Come on over. I'll show you how. And you always have to be open, but you have to wait until people are ready. I don't think that it should be a mandate to do all of this stuff because you're going to overwhelm people. And when I teach somebody about something new in technology and integrating it in integrating it in the classroom, I always start with one thing. So I told one teacher, let's start with Seesaw because you can use that all year long. And it's like you can use it for different things. You can use it every day. After that, we'll dive into into different things. And you just have to make it relevant and easy and not put a lot of pressure. I never want to be the kind of person that comes across as, oh, well, you should do it this way because it's better. No, my way is not necessarily better. It might not work for everybody or every student. But if you'd like to check it out, you know, here it is. And sometimes I lean in a little harder depending on what it is than other things, but really it's just kind of like a, a student, you can't reach that kid unless you establish a relationship with that kid. You can't teach a teacher something unless they trust you and know that you're here to help and not just beat them down and try and prove that you're better than them. So just like when you're teaching your kids, you that's what you have to apply when you're trying to share stuff with teammates and uh, people from other campuses.
0: Yeah, no, that's great, and I appreciate you, you know, sharing that. I guess method or you know strategy that you've kind of built up right over time. And and I think you've realized just how important one technology is. And, you know, mm-hmm. for the audience out there, I mean, you can debate me all day long if you want to. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's, you know, you can say one thing over another, but if you deny it, I mean, it's here. It's, it's obviously here and it's, it's only going to grow And I highly encourage, you know, anyone that's in any career field really to start with, like you said, one tool, right? And Mm -hmm. learning that one tool and you can kind of, you know, develop skill sets that'll apply to different applications. I mean, it's it's all, I don't want to say they kind of overlap, but I mean, it's almost like I go back to this idea of when I was younger, I really wished I would have paid more attention in my computer classes, like typing (laughs) especially. Oh my god! Like as an <laughs> adult, I I wish I typed like literally double the speed that I do now. It would help me out so much. But the other part to that is just really paying attention to the skills and the things that I learned maybe in a math class or in an English class, mm-hmm. and really trying to you know say to myself, okay, you know, yeah, you're in this class that you may not like, but you're still developing something, whether mm-hmm. it's how to study, whether it's how to organize information in your head, how to communicate, whatever. You know, all these skills are going to be useful in some way, shape, or form in your life. And so I want to pivot just a little bit. So I'm curious about what you are... I'm, and I'm going to kind of preface this with the audience doesn't know this, but you went to grad school mm-hmm. and you decided that you wanted to take something that is passionate to you, because I know that it is. And can you kind of just talk a little bit about how you came about making that decision to go to grad school?
1: So like everything in life, I just was kind of pushed in that direction. <laughs> it was actually a suggestion to me. I actually did not even know that there was was a graduate program for technology integration in schools. So what ended up happening is I'm a first year teacher, not really doing well, I'm gonna be very honest with you. Like I was okay. It wasn't like, oh my goodness, she's she should have been a teacher all along. It was definitely like this whole learning curve. Midway through, I'm thinking maybe January and or February-ish, I came up with this idea that ended up consuming my entire life for like the next year of making a word wall where the kids could scan the word and listen to what the word was and it all came about because we had to invest all of this time and energy into this giant word wall that took up this entire wall in our classroom and the whole idea was, okay, well, when you write and you don't remember how to spell a word, you can go look at the word wall and know how to spell it. And so, you know, following directions as a first year teacher, my class is writing, Miss Gonzalez, how do you spell if? Well, go look at the word wall. And this poor baby's looking at this word wall for like two solid minutes. I'm like, honey, it, it's on the word wall. Like, do you see it yet? She's like, I don't know how to spell it. What does it look like? And that was like a total revelation for me. Like, what are we doing with this word wall if these babies can't even read it? So I put a QR code next to each word on the word wall, where the kids could scan it and listen to it on Google Translate. And so that kind of helped my kids write. They wanted to know what the word your was. They knew it started with a Y, but there's five Y words. They can scan them. Oh, that one. And they could even pull it off because it was like sticky tacked onto the wall take it to their seat, write it, put it back on. It kind of looked funky after a while, but whatever. It was my students. And then somebody said, oh, you should really go to grad school for technology integration. Oh, (laughs) so that, let me see. That spring, I applied, and that July, I found out that I was um, going to grad school. I was on the beach with my family, and my phone binged, and there's my Gmail account, and it's, congratulations, you were accepted. And I was totally floored that I got into grad school, considering my undergrad GPA was, like, average. <laughs> I mean, you know, because I was working. <laughs> it wasn't, like, a 4.0. I think it was, like, a 3.1 or something. And I was just like, I cannot believe I have made it this far. And so I went to grad school, fell in love with it, and grad school ended up being where I totally shine. I'm talking 4.0's because I actually cared about it, which was another lesson in teaching is that kids are going to try and achieve more when they actually like this content. So try and make them like the content. And it was just this like totally eye-opening experience. So two years later, I have my graduate degree and I love it. And I've met so many people networking and learning, and i Able to apply everything that I learned from this program at U of H to everything that I do now, and it's wonderful.
0: That's fantastic. And you know, I wanted you to kind of paint that picture for the audience because you know, you went from something that was, I'll say it like this, there was a need in your classroom. You went into an entirely different, I don't know, maybe not different is the right way to word it, but you were innovative in that moment because you saw that your students were struggling with how to spell. And for the audience out there, sometimes when you go through life and you try to figure out like, you know, what is it that I'm passionate about? Or why is it that I'm existing, right? And so mm-hmm. I think that is one of those things where you have to seize those moments. And I say this, and I've said this in in other podcast episodes that, you, in order to truly, in my opinion, to be successful, doesn't necessarily mean that you have to make a whole lot of money. I mean, the money is great, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, of course, we're in education, right? I mean, it's not like we're I mean, it's not like my bank account is overflowing with millions of dollars, Mm-mm. but at the same time though, I literally cannot wait to wake up every day to do what I do. I can honestly 100% say that. And mm-hmm. to me, it's like, how do you help other people get there? And so that may be, you know, another topic for me <laughs> day, but... The the people that are out there listening, just kind of take that in for a moment, right? And just ask yourself, what is it that I'm good at doing? Or what is it that I have a passion for? And how could I turn that into a career? And notice that I said, turn it into a career and not make money, right? I think mm-hmm. a lot of times if money is your driving force, then it's almost like your career or that passion turns into something that you have to do. And so I just want to make sure that I'm really clear on that is that's not what I'm saying. So, which leads me to what you are doing today.
1: So we're noticing a pattern here where things just kind of like happen by chance. And that's exactly how I got this new job. (laughs) a month ago. So I am in a brand new role. It was created just this year. And I am now a teacher development specialist for integrating technology in kindergarten classrooms for an entire school district in Houston. And it is just so overwhelming sometimes to think that I've made it. This is what I wanted to do. And I'm here. Um, What ended up happening was that I was looking for something else. I'm like, you know what? I have my degree, let me just shoot my shot. And I got that from a friend of mine and we both have matching charms from James Avery of a little basketball, because that's always what we say to each other, shoot your shot, just go for it. It doesn't matter if it totally flops, but you can say that you went for it. So I applied as an instructional technologist for a secondary position. Reminder, I have no business applying for this position. I have no secondary experience. I'm talking, I have three years in kindergarten and one year in second grade. and all of a sudden I get this phone call from HISD and they're really asking about me because they liked my resume and my resume is all kinder it's like kinder beautiful because even when I taught second grade it was babies that were very very low and basically everything was on a kindergarten level so differentiation so I added that to my resume and she looked over it and she was like we want you and I'm like okay great for a secondary they're like no reading academies um house bow three you know state of Texas everybody has to put this in place, but every district has like kind of control over how they want to do it. So my school district wants me to help integrate technology just in kindergarten. And when she told me that, like I almost cried because I'm like, this is perfect because not a lot of teachers with four years experience get these opportunities. A lot of the time they don't take you seriously as an educator unless you've taught STAR, unless you've taught, you know, sixth grade and up. Oh, you've taught kindergarten, like that's cute. But she was just like, no, like we need people that can put this foundation in, that can set these kids up for success day one in the classroom, not wait until they're in third, fourth, and fifth grade to implement these kinds of skills. Like we want somebody that can do that in kindergarten and you're perfect for that. And a lot of time kindergarten teachers are overlooked. Like, oh, that's cute, you play all day. And it's not until you actually teach kindergarten or have that experience where you're like, no, like you're teaching reading. You're teaching all of these fundamental skills that you know, they'll be using for the rest of their lives. So for me to be able to jump into this role as a new educator with this, you know, fresh air quote perspective is just really exciting for me because I get to share my knowledge and experience with these teachers that can then, you know, use it in their classroom. So instead of just influencing just my 25 babies a year I'm I have this opportunity to be able to influence you know all these kids across the district and it's just really cool to think about
0: that's a great story Gabby and I (laughs) truly appreciate you taking the time today to sit down with me and I've learned so much about you Um, more so than I even knew before. And so I really appreciate everything that you have shared with our audience today. So as we kind of wrap up our time together today, one of the things that I try to make sure that I always leave these podcast episodes with is just some inspirational words, you know, for people that are out there that are maybe looking to, you know, start a career in education, or, you know, that maybe trying to figure out, you know, I'm not necessarily doing what I'm passionate about, you know, at the moment, but I know I want to get there eventually. So what is it that you would kind of give to someone that's in those positions?
1: I feel like a lot of the time teachers forget that they're lifelong learners too. So when all of these kids in your classroom, you would never tell them just give up. It didn't work. You would never tell a student that. So why would you as a teacher tell yourself that, oh, this technology thing that I tried to implement, you know, day one did not work. So we're just going to scrap it and we're not going to use that again. As a teacher, whether you're a new teacher or a seasoned teacher, don't be afraid to fail and be kind to yourself when you do. It's not a mistake. It's a learning process. And there will be mistakes along the way. I can't tell you how many times my lessons have flopped completely in front of admin and everything where we just totally fell on our face as a class. But I always pulled the kids aside. We would talk about it and we would try and fix it. And the next time it didn't work. But you have to keep growing from it and learning. Whether you're new to this or you've done this before, it's not too late to learn something new. And there's always going to be people, whether on your campus, on Twitter, on social media, that will be able to help you.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be sure to subscribe. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow me on social media using the handles at education underscore explo or at Matt We'll chat again soon.